Welcome back. This is Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dr. Rosie Bush. I'm here at UC Davis in my office today. I, I don't know what day it is, and <laughs> but it's sometime it's this week. Thursday, it's Thursday, October 27th, 2022. Wonderful. 1.29 p.m. I think I've spent a total of two hours in my office this week. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think that's one hour and 47 minutes more than me. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obviously joined by Ryan Mahoney here today. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Yep. How are you doing? Good, 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 good. I'm doing great today. So today is, we we rotate started rotating days off this week, and today is my day. So I Yay. slept in till like oh my goodness. 7.30 this morning. You look well-rested. <laughs> yeah, I still got some good eye bags going, but I'm I'm definitely feeling a lot better. It's amazing how like so in like for swimming they taper into the races and what does that like mean? You put all this so you like so you put all this energy into training and you're building this energy and you're getting your body conditioned to be able to run these races and 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 build this endurance. And then leading up to a big race, they taper. So they take that workout, an energy demand, and rather than burn in 3,000 calories, now they're going to burn, you know, 2,500, then 2,000, and then 1,500. And what it does is it gets your body to kind of like stir this, store this energy up. Uh, okay. And then you're like, you're pumped up, like you're ready to go <laughs> and you got all this energy. So like my daughter, when she's at the end of a taper, she's like crawling up the walls of the house, like just with all of this energy ready to go. But you know, most of the time she's exhausted, but, uh, cause she's burning all the energy. Well, so we've been lambing. I've been burning all this energy. I've been like super exhausted every day. And then like, now here I am, it's like one 30 in the afternoon and I'm just like, oh, okay, what are we going to do? I gotta go there. I'm like bouncing. I can't stop moving. It's just funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. You're like fancy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I got all this energy, my body stored up, ready to use it, but it's not using it today. So I think oh, yeah. I got a, I have a total of, um, oh, I don't want to talk to Siri. Stop that watch. All right. <laughs> I got a total of, did it twice. Uh, I have 2,500 steps today and I've been, I've been <laughs> averaging like, 18,000. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I'm like terribly, terribly lazy today, but it is great. feels really good. good. That's good. Anyway, so I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm good. I am full of energy because I brought this to work today. It's like a, that's like two pots in one. It's a coffee pot, not a coffee mug. It's not. Yeah. It's not a mug. It is the pot. It's like a giant insulated French press and I brought it to the trip I went to yesterday or whatever, two days ago. What I didn't <laughs> trip was that? I have kind of been going all over the place, but uh Tuesday? Yeah. I <laughs> I found out on Monday that I was leaving Tuesday to go to Northern California. Um pretty much Nevada. And it was beautiful and amazing to just get samples for this OPP project. And, um, it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was, it was some really cool pictures up there. The high desert's pretty special. It was cool. Pretty amazing. 
Yeah, it gets cold, but then it'll get a little warm in the afternoons. And I, I don't know, like the sun's, even though it'll be like 46 degrees or 50 degrees, like the sun feels a little different there. I don't yeah, know. no, it was funny because so I was working the gate in the morning. They had to, they were scanning yous. And so they wanted to scan a group before I jumped in to bleed. So I was working the gate. And I was on the shady side of the gate and it's a solid panel. So my toes Ooh. were frozen because <laughs> there was no sun <laughs> and my fingers were cold because I was holding the metal uh, handle of the gate. And so they gave me gloves. <laughs> I swear I was, I well, maybe I was complaining, but I don't think I was complaining that much. I think I was just visibly shivering. <laughs> so, so um, I told you to ask me about my Castle Fort, Idaho. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, this is a good segue for it. So <laughs> I I was new, new jumping into the, I don't know, to the outside world. I'd been working for grandpa for a while, but pretty much confined to the feedlot and the pastures. And um, anyway, we had an opportunity and we bought these ewes out of Idaho. And so grandpa had me go, we went up and looked at them and did all that stuff. And then I went up to go ship them. And um, so it was December 1st or 2nd and, um, I flew into Boise cause I like Boise and they have a great downtown and they have like, they had this lamb in the bass district there. They have this like lamb grinder sandwich was like peppers and onions and stuff on mm. a French roll. It's so good. Anyway, <laughs> I literally stayed in Boise. We we're shipping in castle Ford, which is like a four hour drive or something away, but I stayed in Boise just so I can have that sandwich. <laughs> and then I had to get up and go to castle Ford in the morning. So I get up, and I, and I'm a California guy, a California sheep rancher raised in the Delta. And yeah, I lived in Portland and around, but you know, I, I hadn't spent a lot of time on the high desert. And so I go and I, I got, you know, I know it's going to be cold. It's December. And so I got my long johns. I got my Levi's. I got my boots. I got my thick socks. I got my gloves, got my jackets and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, anyway, so I go and I, get all that stuff on and I take off in the morning and I start going down the freeway and it's like an exceptionally cold, cold snap. And <laughs> I remember at one point I stopped, uh, at a Walmart on the way and, um, it was negative like 15 degrees in my little <laughs> temperature of the car thing. And I'm, and I went into Walmart to buy like the little hand warmers. Cause you know, I'm a California think like a little <laughs> packet is going to keep, <laughs> keep me warm. <laughs> so by this hammer, anyway, I go and I, get out to these corrals and like immediately starting getting made fun of. And so then I'm just <laughs> there and I'm freezing cold, you know, I mean, I got all this layers, but I'm cold and all these guys are in their nice cart heart, you know, thick cover hall stuff. And they're just kind of laughing at me. And so finally Stan Boyd was the bro broker on that. So then I looked at Stan, I was like, how much would you sell those coveralls to me for? <laughs> And I think I ended up buying them for like 150 bucks or something like that, or 60 bucks. And anyway, I paid them, pulled out my wallet, paid them cash. And I bought these coveralls off of Stan Boyd in the middle of these corrals. And we loaded sheep. There was snow like four feet tall where they dug out the loading alley for the sheep. And uh -huh. uh, it was just great. But anyway, so and I still have those coveralls today. And, um, and yeah, so the coveralls I got, I bought them off of Stan Boyd in like <laughs> negative seven degree weather in Castleford, like Idaho. Like off of his body. <laughs> yes. I told her like, I'm taking it. You can sit in your heated car. I'm buying these sheep. I got to look at these bags and make sure I cut out anything I don't want. And, um, <laughs> so, so yeah. And he just, it was great. <laughs> yeah. So much fun. So 
anyway yeah. so yeah it's uh it gets cold on that desert man and it, if uh, you're not acclimated to it it's different it's very different oh yeah it's just like the it's kind of like the heat in california is different than heat in georgia or in these different places like the cold and the desert it's like a crisp bite like it's a it's a crisp cold and And it's it's windy it can (laughs) be yeah i was standing so i was facing south so the sun in the morning was on my left side of my face and yeah. I, was, I missed one of the use and we were just laughing about how little how we're always thinking about a hundred different things so we can't focus on the one job we have to do and so my one job was to put open use in this other pen and I missed one and I was laughing I was like oh I was just thinking about why my right ear is frozen and my left ear is fine <laughs> Yeah, and then they had to go catch her, and I felt bad. But I never made that mistake again. (laughs) Yeah, well, sometimes it's good to move around a little bit in that cold (laughs) weather. Having to go catch a sheep isn't the worst thing. Yeah, it was And if you ran a gate and never missed a sheep, you're a lion son of a gun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't the end of the world. (laughs) on On my left arm is what I usually sort with. And I have like a permanent bruise and scar from like, as you're sorting, you'll open up and sheep will jump, you know, every, you know, mm-hmm. hundred sheep will jump and hit you like right. right. In that arm. <laughs> and man, I have like this bruise every year. It's been getting worse and worse. And when I sort and get hit there, man, <laughs> it just it kills my arm. Yeah. It took <laughs> me probably. I'm pretty proud of it though. Like it's good <laughs> to be able to say that, like, I actually have like a callus from sorting sheep, but <laughs> It took me probably 300 sheep to realize that I should be on the other side of the gate because, <laughs> you know, the default is they should be pregnant. So I had to hold the gate open pretty yeah. much the whole time. And and then I could let go when they were open sheep going into the other pen. So I was like, all right, I think I need to stand over there so I can just kind of prop the gate open and not have my arm out the whole time. Yep. But yeah, I figured it out eventually. <laughs> yeah, always let the largest number go straight. Yeah. They went straight. It was just me having to hold the gate that way so they could go straight. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, but the gate, you got to like. It was the gate. Yeah, you got to have the gate go easy. But because you, you also have to think of the way the sheep's looking too, because you want the easiest route to be for where the majority of the sheep are going to go. So, like, if you're a sheep and put yourself at that eye level, you need to be able to be seeing the other sheep. Like, if you have to cut, out and you have the majority of them getting cut out like you always you, no, and like the, doing so it I guess wrong. the yeah. corral was built correctly it was just because the oh gate... i totally get you screwed it up okay. and you were no in the, it... <laughs> so. the sorting gate was tilted so it kept the pen where they were supposed to go when they were open that gate kept just falling open uh, we got so little magnets so we have like we have these little oh, light, light strength magnets that can hold stuff open. That's pretty handy. Really yeah, handy. that would be a good idea on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was fun. It was amazing. And they were, the hospitality was incredible. Was well, that family fun. you went and visited, they're famous for their hospitality. Yeah. They're famous for their parties. They yeah. had babies and i got to hold babies and it was really cool human babies or baby lambs well no human babies both are both are fun but (laughs) no (laughs) i like to distinguish between two (laughs) yes because i call them all the same thing baby dogs are very fun too you know (laughs) they had baby dogs too (laughs) yeah yeah it was all fun but yeah yeah 
Good stuff. That's so much fun getting up there to that desert. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I wanted to ask because you were talking. I so thank you oh. for recording and publishing a podcast. <laughs> well, um, for my drive home, that was great. Um, <laughs> that was, was what Dan Dan and I recorded last two days week. ago. Yeah, two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I guess I take I actually have been in the office for an hour because I recorded for an hour and five minutes with Dan. So I lied, I lied when I made my joke <laughs> about being in here for only 13 minutes. Three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was curious. You said that this year you had more maiden use and that your death loss for your lambs were a little bit higher. So I was curious if that was from having to pull more lambs, like from dystocias or what you think your death loss, your higher death loss this year might be from other than you being busy and maybe not being able to catch yeah, things. So or... the, the, the main cut, I mean, yeah, it's a couple things. So yearly maiden use is the reason. And with those, we don't have as many pulls. Um, we had a few, but, um, I'd say our pull rate was pretty darn low. I mean, we probably pulled maybe 15, lambs out of all the ewes at Mayhead. So so then why do you want a low birth rate well, birth rate weight lamb? Birth weight ram. <laughs> uh because I don't want to pull like any. Oh okay. Yeah. I like them when they're easy. But I also don't want a small lamb that's not yeah. gonna be able to nurse and reach the teats. So yeah. um but typically that kind of works itself out. Um but I was gonna yeah so but we did have some big ones. Um I'm trying to find here. I have a photograph. Here's one, and it's hard to see because it has shavings on its hind end. But that that one right there was a huge lamb. That was like the size of my leg, and yeah. um, but that was we had one one Goliath. I think it just overcooked. But yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, the higher death loss went to maiden use. It's the it's that use maternal instinct is being developed. I get I kind of this is my explanation of it. You probably have a better one, but on those maiden ewes, the you the ewes maternal instinct is being developed during that first lamb being born. It's never gone through the experience before. It's never been caught, put into a jug. It's I mean, it was when it was a baby, but that would be it. And so it's kind of going through all this before or for the first time. So everything is being triggered by hormones. And they're different new experiences for that animal every time. Whereas this, the ones that have already gone through it kind of know a little more of what to expect. Um, I know they, I experienced that. <laughs> they all, they all read the, they all read the book, what to expect when you're expecting by yeah. the second go round, you know, <laughs> first, the even first if you time. read the book, your first time, you still cry every night. No. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that, that, that first you, it's just, a, it's a little more struggling. One of the biggest problems with your, with the yearlings is, or the maiden use, whatever they're two year olds. So they're, I don't know, call it long yearlings or first timers, first time lammers. I know that, but they, um, they get confused. So you'll have like, you know, we'll have 60, 70 heavies in a pen. That's not too big, but not too small either. So they can isolate, but they often are with others. And if we're feeding and they start to lamb while they're eating the hay, a lot of times they'll drop a lamb right with the near some other use. And if you have a lot of yearlings and they're all dropping around the same time, those ewes get really confused as to who's or who's and 
what one belongs to what, and one is starting labor and thinks it already had a lamb because the hormones are working. Mm -hmm. And so it'll go and try to take a lamb and actually allow it to nurse on it and like start to take it. And then all of a sudden it has twins and it doesn't know if those are theirs. And then it rejects the one that it thought was theirs, but then the real mother. And so there's just a lot of confusion. The more you have lambing in and together um, with those yearlings, it's just, that's just yearlings. They're just, and, and you can get some of that with any age sheep, but. Um, Did you yeah. have more twins with the two-year-old maidens than you would normally with your yearling maidens? I don't know the answer to that. I would say we bred a large person. So normally on like our first years when we exposed them at eight months and lambed them out at one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd get like 13, 14% to lamb in our October window that we want. And now that we switched to this, we got like 85% to lamb out all in our October window. So, um, that's really what we were going for more yeah. than anything. Okay. And then, and then also the energy demand on that 10, 13% that had a lamb at a year old, that still has to grow, still has to produce wool, still has to lactate and take care of a land. That's just a lot of energy on an animal and it's hard for them to conceive the following year. Yeah. I guess what I was just kind of throwing around was if there was a way for her to learn in the meantime from other ewes that are lambing. Yeah. Wow. Well, but we keep them separated. I mean, yeah. there's no reason to bring them in and feed, force feed them hay when you have grass outside in other fields. Yeah. So yep. yeah, we're not going to do any of that apprenticeship training. <laughs> just, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I don't we, even know if that would work. I feel like it is something that they have to experience and yeah, they, they have, have to, get, to have the hormones to drive those. Yeah. Yeah. Behaviors. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> and yeah. And then I, the other, like the reason for the increased death loss as a percentage from previous years. I I really attribute a lot of that to having so many so fast and our system being overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, so, um, you get to, you get to a point where you're treating, treating critical things rather than preventative treatment on subclinical stuff. Mm -hmm. And when you get to that critical stage, you have a higher loss. And so a lot of it's that. So like, even like this yearling confusion, when you're having, you know, a hundred twins born in a 18 hour period or something like you to take the time to make sure every single one is paired up exactly right is harder. And so you miss things and things happen or you get to it late. And, um, so you're taking that rather than picking up that twin and putting it in a jug, you're, um, leaving it in a field and you're, um, sorting the heavies off to another spot. And then you're coming back and checking it. And one of those twins has gone down to the point where now it has to be brought in as a bummer. And the U left as a single rather than them coming as a twin and getting that attention that way. So there's, it's just, it's that, it's that, that's the negative side of being overwhelmed in your system. And so it was Mm -hmm. just too many, too quick. I get, it was like, it was very intense. Yeah. And so with that much, we had a little higher loss, but then I don't know. I mean, I got to add up all these numbers, but I mean, we have a heck of a good crop. So yeah, I, I don't yeah. know if we're higher than last year or lower, but I think we right. might, we're yeah. definitely pretty close and we're not done yet. We still have 400, 500 used to lamb out. So yeah. And it should... may seem higher. Cause like you said, it was like maybe more in a day, but you've had so many more 
born in a day. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's, I know it's going to be challenging. We're actually, we're, we're going to close the lambing camp, the Mayhood lambing camp tomorrow. We're going to move all of our, we have a hundred heavies left and we're going to move those up to the Goosehaven ranch and we're going to take our 51 bummers and move them up with the other bummers. And we're actually, we're going to start weaning the following week on about hundred of the bummer lambs that we have between the two places and, um, and then move our coal use out. We got 12 coals that we'll move out and then we'll just have singles and twins and we'll move the twins, the alfalfa and we'll have three bunches of singles. So here in about, I don't know, maybe middle of next week and the next week, it'll be nice and quiet. Nothing going on at the Mayhood barn. Wow. And, la crazy. and last week it was chaos. It's just, it's amazing how it shifts. Like, it's really fun. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, Oh, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what I kind of wanted to go this direction with the topic, but what do you what is the most fulfilling part of this work for you? Uh I we've talked a lot. I feel like I always talk about this, but it's it's the work itself. I it's being close to life. It's being um, being able to kind of care for these creatures and, and, um, you know, take part in, in that creation and the land stewardship and all of that, that kind of goes together. It's seeing the grass grow and the grass die, seeing the lambs born and the ewes shorn and, you know, kind of that, just that cycle, see them grow. And it's just, it's, it's just being part of the lifestyle and work. That's kind of a, I think a lot of people desire it these days. Yeah. Because it, it's missing from a lot of urban environments. Um, and it's really honest. Like there's no, you can't, you can't hide, you can't hide your mistakes on a ranch or something like that. You know, when you're dealing with living creatures, you gotta, you gotta own up to them. And, you know, you can't buy, I guess you could buy liability and you can buy insurance, but you can't, you can't defer liability and blame when it comes to animals, you know, yeah. when it comes to livestock and, you know, things happen. So you, yeah. you have to learn from it constantly and it's a challenge too. And I like that. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like in the last two weeks or so, I don't know, for me, the last two weeks has felt like two months. So many different things have been happening. So it's hard for me to keep track, but I've seen so many more conversations on Instagram and all these things about how it, it is so wild how agriculture gets so much negative um publicity or they get a lot of pressure for different reasons when everyone eats three times a day and without agriculture we wouldn't have that we wouldn't have the opportunity to be doctors and lawyers and influencers and all these things and it's i don't know it's there's it seems like there could be a lot of frustrations with it and yeah, I don't know. It's so, I think agriculture is easy to pick on because we do like. Well, it's easy because there's so much, there's so many of us and we're. And you can make things better. <laughs> like, well, but I mean, a lot of the, the criticism is driven. I, I Most people don't realize that criticisms are driven by marketing. 
more often than not, like mm-hmm. it's their marketing campaigns trying to sell you a organic peach <laughs> that's driving the anti-commercial peach <laughs> farmer, you know, <laughs> like messaging, right? Like a lot of times, like so much of this is marketing. Even like you look at like the fake proteins and stuff like that. Like a lot of it is just a, it's a, there's a lot of negative implications in a lot of that stuff. And it's a marketing driven desire playing on people's human emotions. I mean, a marketing, the, the knowledge in our marketing world is at a level that no one's ever seen. Like our understanding of human nature and how to get people to feel certain emotions about a product and encourage you to buy it is at a, is at a level and sophistication, you know, unheard of ever. And, um, and that plays into our perceptions and farmers, like it's really easy to say farmers do this, farmers do that. Ranchers do this, ranchers do that. But you spend, you know, you, you drive all around the country and, um, you know, just how many people are like coal is still nobody it's coal (laughs) you know how many people are like joe mattis joe's like joe mattis i'm like me dan's like dan like and we're all so different and that i guess that's what is so wild to me like so i was in a meeting where we're trying to develop some language for some things and there are some really strong feelings about very specific words and you know you can't say best management practices when we all know that it just means that you know, there are some gold standards ways of doing things. And then there's also, these are some options that you might have. But when you say best management practices, there's people who've never stepped foot on a field that think that means there's a recipe for how you do things. Well, that's <laughs> our, we're built that way. I mean, we're, we're, our country, our society is built that way where we try to draft and, I mean, you look at corp corporate culture in general and it, everything has standard operating procedures and all the stop operation procedures have written procedures for every variable conceivable in each of those things. Well, the close we've talked, we talked about this in the one episode, the closer you get to nature, to pure nature and it's unadulterated form, which you really encounter in, and really, if you really get down to it in that Western range of the United States in sheep herding and cattle herding on that range, like you are at the mercy of nature and you cannot control it. Mm-hmm. And so like a fire gets started, a, st- a fire is started by lightning and it burns hundred thousand acres. Like you can prevent things. You can work towards improvements. You can do a lot of stuff, but that's going to happen. Yeah. And you can't like, you can't, uh, litigate your way out of it. And it's, I don't know. A lot of those, like all of these procedures and things, like we talked a lot, a little bit about it, but like so much of it is about liability deferment from the per like, so you have the customer buying the product Mm -hmm. and then that, that seller, that first seller is closest to the consumer. They want to defer liability for what they're selling to the next level. And then they defer liability down. And so then it just goes all the way down. So like you're, antibiotic free, everybody signs an affidavit down to the farmer. So that way, when there's an antibiotic found in something, the farmer's in trouble, but the farmer can't defer liability beyond anybody else. And if the program it's the is sheep's fault, yeah, right. No, the sheep jumped into the medicine cabinet and shot itself full of LA 200. Yeah, I had no control. It's just, 
<laughs> you should have seen it. You had a cigarette seen... hanging out of its mouth. It just walked up the bar the and flipped You've me off. That. You've seen Sean the sheep do stuff like that. It happens. But <laughs> was that border that border collie did it. <laughs> They're but, smart. But it's but I mean but you we're laughing but it actually gets to something that I think is really important that we like we um you know, we think consumers demand things. They demand safe food. They demand cheap food. They demand healthy food. They demand all these different things. A lot of those demands are, um, are, are, uh, not complimentary. They actually work against each other. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, a lot of the demands are uninformed and the way brands are able to sell things is by finding these ways to defer liability down to a farm and find a farmer that's willing to sign something for a a buck. And, um, because farming is hard and margins are tighter and tighter. I mean, you look at more, I think agriculture, I think the average, um, I think the average like uh, margin for a farm in the U S is like seven or 8%. It's something like that. Like, it's nothing. And then you go into retail and it's like 30. Like, so, you know, you <laughs> like, it's really sad when you when the way that the way that's built up, but there's so much so much liability deferment from the brands to the farm. And when you sign up for gap and you sign up for American wool assurance and you sign up for non-hormone treated NHTC certified, you sign up for all of these things, you're assuming the liability on yourself for those practices. And a lot of those practices, the details in those practices can be challenging unless you know exactly what you're signing. And we sign up, we, you know, we do NHTC cattle. Um, we're very open that, you know, in our audit, we show our auditor everything we do. We show them we do use um, implants on our cattle in this scenario. Here's how we store them. Here's how we handle them. And then we don't on these that are going to be in the NHT. And anyway, we do all that. We're very open. There's a lot of people that just hide them and do the audit. And because it's easy to do that. And there's other people that, you know, like, there's other programs like we won't sign a program that doesn't allow, um, doesn't allow that might get in trouble for this one that doesn't <laughs> allow electric prods. Um, I, we, we use them on our ranch. We use them, um, consciously. We don't abuse them. If somebody is going to abuse them, we don't keep that person on staff. Uh, it's like, it's a very important tool, but, um, it's, but it's also like anything else. I've seen some of the worst abuses, would be actually with like, um, sticks or paddles or things that are allowed under these humane handling programs. Yeah, or there was that dairy farm that was cranking the tail. I know we'd curl the tail to get them to move. Yeah. 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 And I mean, then like, just like curling the tail, like I'll curl the tail of a sheep to get it to move, but you have mm -hmm. to do it a certain way and you don't break the tail off. No. You, yeah. you apply it's pressure like, and then it's a release yeah. and you like, there's ways to do it, but like, um, but then if you like, you write a standard and say that nobody does this, like, like the electric prods, a good example, because like you write a standard that says no electric prods ever used on any of these animals. And then you go to the ranch and they're using sticks and they're hitting them and they're twisting tails. Well, like, is that better for the animal? Probably not. But now this, you know, but now this brand, this brand can sell it and say our product's superior and everybody else is superior. 
And my negative connotation of my marketing that says that ours is better implies that everybody else is worse and everybody that's using this electric prod is abusing their animals, which is completely false. And so that, that when I say like the, 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 the marketing is driving a lot of the negative attitudes on farming. It really is. It's these, these programs and it's the negative implications of these programs. But it's also, it's not just marketing. It's a regulatory environment, right? Well, like, it all bleeds together. Yeah. Well, and they use regulation to force people into changing. They're like, oh, if we make this law, then they have to change. It's yeah. like, but that doesn't make it better. And uh, I've been reading a book recently. I can't remember what it's called. It's about the end of the world. Great and, book. <laughs> yeah, great book. Um, I, I say I've been reading it. I listened to it on Audible while I'm driving. And they, I don't know, he gave an example about how there's organic farming and then there's environmentally friendly farming. And I was like, whoa, like that was a pretty wild thing to say. And it, he was just using the example about how many more. And then I'm sure there, it was a broad generalization. I'm sure there's farms in either of those that kind of, you know, I'm sure there's crossover, but yeah, uh, yeah, it was just interesting because you're saying that the perception is organic farming is environmentally friendly, better in all aspects. And whereas on some organic farms, they have to do more passes. They have to do more, you know, different types of fertilizers that are, you know, considered uh, acceptable for organic farming, but may actually be you know, maybe not as great for the ecosystem. And just like, because it's all marketing, it seems the perception is that it's better, but it might not actually be better for the environment. Well, in the and the people, and... the people that wrote it don't live and work in the environment oftentimes that is being, that is being applied to. Mm-hmm. And so like, they don't recognize that, oh, I passed this rule and all of a sudden it's better because we're not using this one pesticide but then yet we're going to do seven passes with the lawnmowers now. And that again, like, it's, you know, like there's trade-offs that you don't see. And right. And it's assuming like having an apple orchard in Washington is the same as having an apple orchard in LA. Like they have totally different environments. They're going to have yeah. different inputs. They're going to, you know, like, and that was but the whole. Even like, even like there's the direct, direct applications of like feeding an animal natural or uh, antibiotic free. Like you feed an animal antibiotic free in the feedlot, I heard this from JBS Feedyard mm-hmm. guy and Five Rivers. And they, it was, um, if you feed natural, it costs you $200 a head more and you have double the death loss. So like your, your intent is like, oh, I want to buy antibiotic free. I want to buy natural. Natural's better for the animal, right? It's going to be better for the environment. It's better for all this. It's actually not, you're actually less efficient. You're, you know, if, you worry that cows are emitting methane, you're, you know, you're emitting more methane because you need more to supply the same amount of beef. You also are having a worse environment for the animal because you're not able to like, you get to that. It's the same in the lambing barn. You treat criticals. You don't treat because those borderline ones, you want to keep them antibiotic free. So you do other things before mm-hmm. you actually give the antibiotic. And so you end up losing more. And so you didn't help anything, mm-hmm. but you feel good. Yeah. And you sold some at a premium. You got extra dollar. Like, but is that really the best thing for, you know, the environment? I don't know. And yeah, it's hard to have these conversations. Cause I mean, I mean, I, I live and breathe this stuff cause I'm in agriculture and, um, but there's a lot of money that get made off. All, I mean, a lot, a lot of money gets made on all this stuff. Yeah. I, I, I think we talked about it before, but like there's a 
the guy who owns Patagonia, he wrote a book that says, I want to let my people surf. Yeah. All right. You want to let your people surf, but he wants to let his people that work in his offices in the United States surf, but he doesn't want to let the people who wash his wool and spin his wool surf. He wants to hire cheap labor and, you know, somewhere else to do it. And he really doesn't want to buy American fiber because the fiber is too expensive because we have to pay our shears $5 a head. And he'd rather buy that wool from Argentina where they're not paying anywhere near that. I don't know what they pay down there, but you know, 10 cents, 30 cents, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so my sheep shears can't surf. I can't surf. The spinners can't surf. The, the scourers can't surf. But the but those the corporate employees that are selling it and the retailers and the customers, they all get a surf. Yeah. <laughs> and so like there's a lot of contradiction there. And the whole mar I mean, the whole marketing behind that is like better for the people, better for the environment, better for this. But when you really dig into like the whole procurement chain, like man, there is there is not a willingness to actually pay what it takes to live that message because it's it's expensive. It's a lot. Like, you know, you take the cost of raw product and I mean, like I said, I listeners, please correct me, you know, if you want, and, uh, I don't have Instagram, so go ahead and send it to that account. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, but the, uh, you know, if you take, if you're paying 50 cents a head in one country to shear a sheep and you're paying $5 here, you just increased your cost of raw product by like a thousand percent almost. So like, you know, you, that there's costs to that. And I'm, I'm fine with paying $5 a head for my wool. And our product, thankfully we're American product, American made product. But when you look at a sweater from our wool, it's like 500 bucks or something crazy, mm -hmm. but that's what it actually costs to get it through the whole system. And so if you learn to knit, you can make yourself a sweater with your for wool. Less than that. Less exactly. Than that. <laughs> yeah. I'm working on that. I just cast on one <laughs> oh, Perfect for my sister. Yeah. But I think it applies to the meat and it applies to, I mean, almost almost any commodity in ag, it really, like these stories are all very applicable. Like, mm -hmm. And it's, it's frustrating. It can be very frustrating as a farmer producing, especially the more, um, the more traditional of a farm you run, because those are more traditional, just kind of not, tr not trying to keep up with any trends and be in the front of anything. They're just trying to grow their crop, raise their sheep. It really, it affects them dramatically. And I mean, it's important to know what's going on and, you know, sell, sell your, sell your product for the most you can and, and, um, tell people about the quality that's there and, and all that stuff. But it's just, there's a dark side to all this marketing that doesn't really get talked about much. Yeah. It's, I think I told you, but it was right after you deleted Instagram when Patagonia said they were selling their company. No, like giving, giving it, giving, giving it away it, sorry, to a nonprofit yes. that they own and control. That they <laughs> so, totally own and control. Yeah. And yeah, for only environmental benefits. And it was Marie with Stargrazers who just kind of put them on blast and was like, your products are all made out of plastic. <laughs> like, I don't know. It was, yeah. Cause everyone at that well, they, time they was like, to, Oh, they tried wonderful. to buy our wool once they, we, we actually tried to get a deal with them and, um, and they kind of approached us through some stuff, but the, they, they, I, they wanted the way they wanted to work the payment out is they wanted to pay me sale average for the U S and we sell at the top end. So we would have lost like 20 cents a pound on our wool 
and then they would have given us a bonus check, but it had to get filtered through a four five hundred one c three that we had to find somewhere, and then that five hundred one c three would then write us a check for the balance of the. So they would write two checks: one so they can get a tax write off and say they were donated to good deed, and then the other one they just buy a commodity, so they'd be able to show they procured at just commodity levels, and then they did this great donation thing which helped everybody in the environment, and. <laughs> Like I told him, no, I said, like, my wool is worth what the wool's worth. And if you either pay it or you don't, like, yeah. I, we're not going to do any money laundering or anything like that. <laughs> like you, you know, you want to buy American wool. This is what it costs. Like, that's, yeah. that is what it is. And it's just, it's, it's amazing. And that's, uh, that's probably why I pick on them so much, but I think they, they've made their name off of this environmental taking care of people, taking care of the environment, taking care of all this stuff. But then when it gets down to that product procurement, man, it is ruthless and they buy it as cheap as anybody else, if not cheaper. So I mean, if you think about it, like it's cheaper to move raw product across the across the world and process it and move it all the way back across the world. And that's cheaper than moving it from Dixon, California to Texas back to Dixon. You know, yeah. like it's crazy, and yeah. but it's, but it's the cost of people. It's the cost. That's what it costs to do American made because, you know, we value our people here. We value the work ethic. We value the work and, and that's a good thing. And we should, you know, you got to pay a little more for that. Yeah. Well, this book I'm reading talks about how the demographics globally is shifting so much that the labor force that makes things so cheap across the world is not going to be there within this decade. Like everyone's, the labor force is dwindling. And so we need, I don't know, I think we've talked about it before, but the infrastructure being here, that's going to have to come back. Yeah, that happens. That's definitely true in the developed world. But mm-hmm. I mean, there. Well, yeah. apparently in the U.S., our birth rates haven't really changed that much. So, yeah, but the whole developed world is way down. Yeah, Europe is way down, and they've been down for decades. So yeah, no. I heard I might be wrong, but I heard we because we used to be like two point three kids per couple or something like that, and I think now we're down to like one point seven. So we're we dropped below replacement rate. We did like a decade ago or so. It was. Yeah. After the boomers, their kids didn't have as many kids, but now the millennials are having children again, is what I'm hearing. That's good. Yeah. So in 20 years, we'll have a labor force again. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah. But millennials got to work too. I'm a millennial, so I got to work too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I, yeah. That mar- marketing's fascinating. It's so powerful. It's so valuable. It's so important. But, and I, I think it's really hard for companies, especially larger ones, to um, not fall into the temptation of chasing that dollar rather than understand. And I think we see it in the lamb, like the meat side. Um, I mean, and that's a. I can talk beef, so that way we won't pick on lamb so much. But like on the beef side. Um, the Brazilian imports of beef is a huge concern for the industry because over time, like they don't have the same production standards. They don't have the same labor requirements. They don't have all those kind of things that we do. And as we restrict 
beef production in the U.S. They, and we start to increase imports, there comes a time where we end up, you know, throwing the balance the other way. And even though we're trying to sell things that grass fed, antibiotic free, good for the environment, all that other stuff, you end up getting beef imported in that was raised on a cut down rainforest, and, <laughs> which is against everything Captain Planet taught me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's that, it's that same kind of give and take where like, you know, we're in a global environment, but it's really important to make sure that we stay loyal to our American production, especially our American, um, commodity production. So beef, grain, food, we need to have American food. We need American food supplies. We can't just raise corn and soybeans and export it all and bring in the other foods to the U S like we have to raise all of our we need to have a good food supply. Yeah. Um, same thing with energy. Energy is very important. Like we have to have electricity. We have to have these things. And if we are able to produce them here, like, and even if it costs more, it's better to make sure that we have a strong support of those commodities in the U S and then, you know, we can always bring stuff in and, you know, I'm not against, I don't want to be an isolationist and say we should never import anything. We have to have that exchange of goods. It's a good thing for the world and a good thing for everybody. But at the same time, you have to recognize that, you know, you got to support your local, your local, your local food supply, your local, you know, infrastructure supply. Yeah. Yeah. Because thing i mean the world is changing and well, I and i mean covid happened the world shut down which shut down international commerce for yeah. a period of time like and that's uh, insane that was unthinkable the day before it happened and then it happened and so like that's a great example of why we need secure food supply like you know it's just very important like you're an island country and that happens like that's a lot more serious than it was here it wasn't yeah you know, even here we had shortages in the stores, but you know, it was, we were able to fill it quickly. Like, you know, you have yeah. other spots, like, I don't know, read about Argentina the last like six, seven years and what's been happening down there with food shortages and things. Or well, I, think, and I think Panama is going through it right now too. It's like, there's some crazy it, it stuff can happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and because of this world trade, free trade environment, globalization, we've all become more specialized and the U S has yeah. not become as specialized. Like a lot of our manufacturing we've pushed towards other, like you said, where mm -hmm. labor is cheaper, but yeah, I don't know. The book is called the end of the world is just the beginning. Anyway, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. You're getting in some out there stuff. Man. <laughs> no, yeah. I think, well, the guy, yeah. he gave the keynote, um, speech at hey, he the told meeting me he that gave I was a at. talk right yeah it was very yeah <laughs> it was... I, I always like those i like i mean i always like listening to those kind of talks because i think they're very provocative and they inspire you to think about things a little different and they definitely yeah. get you to kind of see some things that you may have not but i do think a lot of them like to maybe exaggerate a little bit just to get a little more publicity and get stuff sold. So I always am a little cautious going into that, those kind of ones. That's good. That's how you but should go in. Exactly. Like but I mean, you know, you look at like protein demand, demand and, and population growth and you put it on a chart and there's a, there's a crosshairs coming in the next 20 years, like yeah. no matter what that's happening. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, there's definitely issues like that. 
Yeah. And I don't know, labor, labor is such an interesting one. Cause I really worry about on our, like, like on wool, we talked about this on our wool episode, but like the skill set it takes to process wool. Um, and this applies to almost any of the manufacturing trades, like the process, the, the skills it takes to do that work, um, is comes from a lived experience, not necessarily a directly, you know, something that you read in a book and get up and start a wool mill. Like you have to start a wool mill and then you'll be good at a wool mill. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you got to work at it and learn. Yeah, and, it's not automatic. Yeah. And so like trying to, the effort it takes to bring that back is going to be five times the effort it took to build it the first place. Yeah. That's what this book was talking about, how in other countries where they've become so specialized with their on basically just exporting goods in order to buy food. And so the food that they used to produce before they became specialized, they don't have that skill set anymore to produce basically subsistence farming for their population. And so if anything happened to global trade where they couldn't export to buy food, to import food, that trade, then they, it would be, it would take them a decade to barely be where they were, you know, like maybe half as skilled as they were before. Mm-hmm. And cause you just lose that skill set. There's no one maintaining that. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and, the, and that's where it gets back to like things cost more. Mm-hmm. Like, and now if you got, if you're going to bring back um, the wool industry, wool garments are going to cost twice as much as they should the next 10 years as they will once that skills back because it's going to cost those mistakes and that learning curve is going to cost so much money. And that means investment. (laughs) Yeah. But it's true. And and all bills get paid by the consumer that's buying that end product. And so like I was talking to, uh, I was talking to a, um, uh, clothing brand people that came out to look at our sheep and, um, I was talking to them a little bit and they were talking about the mentality. So many people think a t-shirt should cost $5, but if you really look at what a t-shirt is, t-shirt should not cost $5. And if you're going to get a t-shirt for $5, there's somebody that's not getting paid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that <laughs> a could lot be, of people. <laughs> yeah, it could be anybody, but there's people not getting paid for that $5 t-shirt. And so you unless really... it's totally automated and you've taken people out of the picture where that investment yeah, but happened even that, and the, it's the paid machines, itself off. <laughs> the machines cost money. But they pay themselves off eventually. And, what, and where's the raw product come from? <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like even even in a fully automated machine, like even if it's a U.S. produced thing or you know everything's all good and there's no slave labor involved or anything like that, like it's still the t-shirt should cost more than five dollars weigh it look at what it's made of (laughs) that should be worth more than five dollars and like but there's a mentality that people have that that t-shirt should be worth five dollars can i go to walmart buy it Mm -hmm. and i mean you have loss leaders right like walmart's four dollar chicken or whatever or costco's uh chicken it's like four bucks for chicken rotisserie like that's a loss leader it's like a classic one of the best examples and most successful loss leaders that I've ever heard of. I think, I think I heard Costco's actually starting their own chicken place just to supply their own chickens. Cause they, uh, give up, they give up a lot of money there, but that mm-hmm. chicken gets so many people in their stores that they're able to make money on losing. They're able to make money by losing money on that chicken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, 
And so like, just, but it's important to know that as a consumer that, Hey, I'm taking advantage of this lost leader chicken, but I shouldn't think for a second that I can raise chickens and sell them for four bucks and make any money, especially if I'm packaging it, roasting it, you know, processing it, raising it. Like it's not, it's worth more than that. (laughs) And so I don't know. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if Costco's behind all of their negative marketing for their chickens. (laughs) Don't buy the chickens. (laughs) Come in for the chickens. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Just don't buy them. We don't want to produce (laughs) them. We don't want to produce them. (laughs) Yeah. No. (laughs) I don't know. It's all conspiracy. No, but I think yesterday, yeah, that was yesterday. (laughs) One of the neatest things was talking to Cole about the different folks who raise sheep on those mountains and how everyone does it differently. And they get, they do get different products off the mountain and how someone, this was a great example. He was talking about a ranch that they lease in Wyoming and that he says they've been able to lease it for like 10 years or something like that. And they've had three different owners. They said there was a two year period where the owner was from Texas and they weren't allowed to use it then because the owners from Texas put their Texas cattle on this ranch in Wyoming. And they decided after two years that that was not going to work and they sold it. And it was it's just a perfect example. They may have been really successful with these cattle in Texas on this really rough terrain, but they don't just, that doesn't mean you're going to be successful doing ranching in Wyoming. And that I think is like, it's both beef cattle, you know, they're making the, yeah. a, the ideal goal is to make the same product but in two totally different environments. And it's like the mentality that anyone can do this anywhere is it's, it's wild. Even in that same high desert environment, you have people doing it totally differently and they have, they both have beautiful animals. They're both obviously able to Mm -hmm. make generations of ranching happen there. And I just, it was really neat getting to it's reframing how that's why I like the podcast because we just get to talk about ideas and options and ways to do things, yeah. but it's not prescriptive, right? Anyone can listen to it and decide, huh, I might think about doing it that way or that would never work here or whatever. Well, know? and uh, for me, like, well, I mean, I, I think we said it with Dan, like, the one of the main reasons why Dan, why we started it was that I've learned everything I've learned by talking to people. And I've been really Mm -hmm. blessed with having a lot of people around me that I can talk to. And we wanted to start this to allow people to kind of start having conversations like Mm -hmm. with people about Mm -hmm. what's going on. Like we do not offer the answers. We (laughs) are all just spewing ideas and thinking up things like it's just, yeah, we're, we're just Hope, hopefully we're, I'm, well, I, I know we are cause we get, we get messages from people that tell us that it's helped, but, um, I think it's really good that we're able to have these conversations cause it's how I learn. So yeah. it's how I have learned and how I'll probably continue to learn. And it's really, really neat. And everybody doing it a little different, like in our area, everybody does it different, but me being able to look over the fence and see how they're doing it different has helped me improve things. It's helped me learn. It's helped taught me things. And it, it's a, it's all a good thing. And that's where I think it's difficult in these, in our desire to kind of structure and regulate and put everything into SOPs that it's really hard to do <laughs> yeah. in agriculture because we are all so different and it's actually reflective of how different everybody's ranch is. Mm-hmm. Like every little 
valley, every little piece of the earth is so different from one another. It's so unique. The way the water flows, the way the grass grows, the strength of the grass in different spots. And it takes years to learn it. And like to try to write it all down into a pamphlet that you can hand to the next generation is, is uh, almost impossible. And it might not even be meaningful. They exactly. may have yeah. different Amen. inputs, yeah. different resources, yeah. you know? I mean, that's one of Andrea's biggest thing. Mangini, we've had her on here before, but there's sheep and goat research that happens across seas in Europe, but it doesn't, you can't just slap it on a dairy here in the U S because our inputs are so different. Our labor is so different. We, you know, like just because it works there doesn't mean that's the answer for us. Um, yeah. And just like the, the, the subsidies are different. The breeds are different. Yep. The type of feeds different. The rainfall is different. The seasons are different. Every it's all different. <laughs> Everything. It's a different place. Yep. And that's the beauty in it. And that's mm -hmm. like, I, I really, I hope, I, my my hope and my hope is that we can work rather than pursue this demand that everybody fits into the same box that we begin to recognize and trust everybody to like be unique and special and work in their areas and do the best they can like start trusting in like re realize that a farmer and rancher's like livelihood is dependent on the <laughs> well-being of those animals yep and we as consumers need to trust in that and realize that that person cares about those animals because if they didn't, they would be out of business. And you have examples of bad players, but it's very far and few between. Like we have, we have to do a, we had to do a, uh, I, was, <laughs> I was talking to Justin about this the other day, but we we're, we're, we have to do a, um, we have to have everybody in the company sign a form that says, you know, I'm not going to abuse animals on this ranch. And I thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever because I don't need a form. If you <laughs> abuse animals, I'm going to fire you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and everybody knows it. <laughs> and, and we're also there all the time. I'm there all the time. Everybody works together. Like we all know this. And so it's like, okay, we all have to sign it. And it's the most ridiculous thing ever because none of us would ever think of doing it. And if somebody starts to, like, we like, that's, that's a no, no, you can't do that. You can't work <laughs> here if you're going to do that. But then you go to like these larger corporations or different places, you'll go to these larger areas and they all have everybody signs. Everybody does this on day one, they go out and that's where you see animal abuse a lot huh. of times. Like you'll see, you know, and then people get fired because of it. And it's a big thing and there's investigation and, but like, once you defer that liability on the person, a lot of times the person stops paying attention or caring about whether they're actually knowing what they're doing. Like, you know, once I, if I got somebody, okay, you sign this, you know, all right, now, if you do it, you're good. Now I'm just going to forget about you. You've had your training. Now go ahead and do your job rather than being present every day, working with that person every day, making sure they're learning. When you see them making a mistake, offer a correction rather than, giving them a form, have them sign it, letting them work for six months and then going out there, see something. And, oh, you did it wrong. You're fired. Next person, mm -hmm. sign this paper, <laughs> go to work. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's a, but there, there's a lot of truth to that. Like you, you, it's actually, I think it's a disservice to the person that you're working with yeah. or that you're hiring or working for. Like you got to recognize them as a person, allow them to grow, allow them to appreciate it. And then you as 
you know, I'm not disconnected from that. We're in it together. Like mm-hmm. if one of my guys does something wrong on the ranch, it's my fault. It's not his fault. I didn't give him the right training. I didn't help him. I didn't give him the right correction. You know, we're, we're in this together. It's, you know, we're all people and we're all working together, you know, and, and that's, I think when you start putting all these contracts and forms and stuff together, it, it gets back to that liability insurance. It's if, if, uh, you know, if, uh, there's a problem on this wool because it doesn't fit that standard. It's that farmer's fault that signed the paper. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not the brand. It's not the mill. Nobody, it's that guy. We're not in this together. It's his fault if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, I think that's sad. It's a sad place to be because, you know, I, I think we can, I think we can start trusting each other a little bit more. And when something goes wrong, stop jumping to conclusions on who to blame and start just taking the blame as a whole. But we are, I mean, we are such a, what is it, litigious, is that the word, society, where, I mean, what happens when there is an outbreak and FDA goes after, hmm? I agree. That's totally what's driving a lot of this stuff. That's what's, that's, that's a problem like that. We need to, we need to find ways to push back against that. It doesn't mean you ignore reality, but yeah. You know, when you have an opportunity to sit here on a podcast and rant about it, go ahead and let it go a little bit. <laughs> no, I know, but like, I mean, who? Which... I still signed. We signed our forms. We got we got our form signed. So like, I, I feel still like we're compliant. We, okay, we still did but... it, but it's like there's there's something there that I think is so. It, to me, it's very powerful. It's very important on like the way we interact and relate as persons. And yeah, and well, and there was recently precedent set where I think was it. FDA considered salmonella a contaminant of poultry. Yeah, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that again, like you say, that puts the the responsibility on the poultry producer rather than the consumer who should be cooking their food. <laughs> like yeah. but doesn't not everybody know that poultry has salmonella? Like well, and then it also takes away from like there's brand loyalty built off a of quality product, right? Like, okay, I buy this Foster Farms chicken because I know it's the best, safest, healthiest, cleanest. It's a really good chicken. Mm-hmm. Well, now that it, it, no, it's they're all the same. It's the farmer's fault if something goes wrong. Like, right you know, like that sales pitch isn't the sales pitch anymore. Now it's mm-hmm. whatever buzzword you want. It's this thing here. It's that thing there. And it's, I don't know, like we've lost, you see that in, in people trying to buy meat, maybe buy, uh, people look at the quality you go into whole foods and you look at those big colorful words that make you feel good above the meat counter. You don't look at the steak. You don't look at the marbling. You don't look at the grade. You don't look at the qualities of what it is. You don't find out, you know, did this come through Joe's backyard butcher shop or did it go through the brand new, you know, processing plant down here? You know, like, and and you see that, like you go around from just in the different land plants, like you, you go through that brand new Dixon facility and it is the cleanest, prettiest, nicest, you know, packing facility I've ever seen in my life. Like it is immaculate how beautiful that place is. And you go, I've gone through other ones that are nowhere near as nice as that. And I'd be like, man, no food coming out of here. I got to think twice, but like that doesn't even enter a consumer's mind anymore. And, and if there's a problem, it's cool because we can just sue our way out of it. There's Mm -hmm. a commercial on the other day that I heard. It was like, it was like, you can't, you can't change what happened in the past, but you can be paid for it. <laughs> I was just like, oh gosh, that's, oh, that's so horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and it's, I, I, 
I don't know. I think we, we, we all have opportunity for growth and for reflection. And, you know, like you said, when you look at your farmer across the way or the, or your neighbor, your farmer, and, and you're learning, you're seeing what they're doing. Does that mean you want to adopt exactly what they're doing? No, but it at least gets you to question if what you're doing is exactly what you want to be doing and what is best for you. Like it gets you to think about it, but you need that comparison, that information. And when we're afraid to present our information because we're afraid of being sued, we're limiting our growth. Yeah. Right. Yep. We're limited and that it only hurts the consumer because we're only doing this for, right. It's a commodity. Well, it hurts the common good. If you want to get it into like philosophical language, it hurts the common good benefits the individual for a minute and it hurts mm -hmm. the common good. It's yeah, yeah. the detriment of the common good. Yeah. I don't know Maybe. how we get back to being able to share information and work together, but I agree. It needs to happen. Well, it's always, it's a, that, that, that <laughs> is, you're never going to, well, one, you can't litigate your way out of it. Can't nope. pass the law. You gotta, <laughs> but it's, it's relational and it's one by one, you know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it starts, it starts, you know, with two people talking and that's how it goes from there. It's having something happen between two people and like not suing over it. <laughs> yeah. One person making that decision one time makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So anyway, and, and I do need to collect on that fence that got run through the other day here. My rant, a car that went through that doesn't want to pay for the fence damage it cost. Got to get him to pay for that. Oh, no. no, that's a joke. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, I do got to get going though. I have to pick up my kids from school. But uh, this has been great catching up. I don't know how long we've been talking. It's got to be like hour 10. We're getting longer. Like, oh, wow. and, we're getting longer and longer. I, I don't it's know. It's because I didn't really have a topic. So we just kind of rambled the whole time. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you come up with a title then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Rambling to the something's a time. I can't remember what that is. I have things uh, written down. I was going to talk, but. Yeah, oh, this was more this fun. Was fun. I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> You got me to say some things that I may, uh, I don't know. We'll see. It'll be fine. Uh, yeah, it's cheap stuff. <laughs> you should know. it'll get people to talk, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been cheap stuff. You should know. Uh, all opinions are not endorsed by any, uh, anybody on this. We just, uh, anyway, just us. So <laughs> thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Dr. Rosie Bush. Always a joy. Always a pleasure. You have a great day. Thanks, Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week. 